building on a full and accurate truth concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the scriptures speak. This is the Relentlessly Biblical Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of the Relentlessly Biblical Podcast. My name is Alexander Ortiz. Thank you for being with us. I'm here with my co-host, Christian Lopez. Hello, hello. And we're coming to you from the Prevail Studios as usual. And I'm excited, Christian, because we've got a really great topic. Yeah. It's one that should be familiar to our listeners because we talk a lot about marriage. Except that we're going to bind those two, marriage and the gospel, together. And I think you guys are going to be pretty thrilled. This is a, yeah. This, and I'm how we do that. Because I know we talk a lot about marriage because it, it's to us in our discussions, in our teachings, and on all these episodes that we've been doing, it's come up as one of those themes that you see right, through right. Scripture, and we're going to tie that all into a nice little bow for everybody today. Okay, but before we do that, I want to get some PSA, some public service announcement stuff out of the way. And it's, you know, as everything that we do in a podcast, you can always go to our episode notes. Episode notes is pretty much grand central for everything you need to know about us has our how to listen, how to follow, how to share the podcast with somebody, how to help support us. But I've noticed that, Christian, on a lot of these platforms, and we were talking a little bit about this before we started the podcast, that, you know, the podcast industry and the, and I guess the standards for the industry are kind of changing a little bit. But it depends on what platform you go to. Sometimes you see the entirety of our notes. Sometimes you won't. So I just want to put this out there to all our listeners that if, if when it comes to our episode notes, they are at, in their entirety at RelentlesslyBiblical.org. You go to our media, our, our podcast website. It's our audio page. You'll see all our audio episodes there. You can click on the show notes and you'll see everything there. So if you're listening on a on one of the platforms like Apple, Spotify or Google or, or whatever, we're on all of them and you don't see the entirety of the episode notes, go to relentlesslybiblical.org, and it'll take you to our audio homepage, and you'll see everything from there. And you said that's the most accurate one. It's not a matter of accurate. Not accurate, but, like, better looking. Well, everything is there. Yeah, yeah. Because I was in Apple Podcast um, looking at our last episode with Jim Osmond, which was the bomb, by the way. And we got a lot of great feedback on episode 14. And, um, you know, some of the notes are cut off, but when you start adding information about your host and what they do and links to how you can get a hold of them and stuff, it grows pretty long, the episode notes. And I noticed that Apple Podcasts cut it off. And they're not the only ones. I mean, Amazon was atrocious at one point where it wasn't even showing our our podca- our episode notes, and they've kind of fixed that. It's just a little wonky out there. Yeah, yeah. And so what I'm trying to direct our listeners to is that go to our audio homepage. You know, and coretruthmedia.org will also get you there. Uh, org will get you there. But our audio homepage is just the best place. So you can see all of our uh, show notes in their entirety, un- untouched and uncut off, if that's a word. Yeah, uh, uncut <laughs> off. I guess that could be a word. But I wanted to put that PSA out there in case people were having that challenge because I was. And I wanted to clarify that for our listeners. And... Thank you for joining us because we are so thankful that you guys are here. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on the episodes that we've been doing. This one's a kind of a deep dive 
into um, some of the things that uh, the Bible communicates that sometimes it's overlooked, okay? And we're not going to talk about just marriage in a contemporary sense, Christian. We're going to talk about marriage when it comes to ancient Jewish marriage customs. Yeah. Because that's what really plays into a lot of what we're going to cover. And what the scripture that we're going to cover, it's going to be various scriptures, but we're basically going to take a leap off John 14, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to start there. And a lot of the teaching, well, let me put it to you this way. I've been wanting to do this for a while. You know, I've been talking uh, about doing been talking this. about it. To talk about marriage and, and, and talk about how it ties into Scripture. Because I was studying Revelation one day, and it talks about the bride of Christ. And I'm saying to myself, I'm not sure if people don't understand what that means, that they would understand the book of Revelation. So the historical and cultural context was necessary in order for me to understand what was going on in Revelation. So I said, we got to put a teaching together here so that we can bring in ancient Jewish marriage customs and kind of tie everything up. Because there's a lot of scriptures in the Bible that do reference the issue of marriage within Jewish society in in Jesus' day. So I did a little research, and and a a good part of what I'm doing is based on a sermon that I heard from Dr. Reynold Showers, and he's a He's no longer with us, but he's a chairman. He was the chairman of the Pastoral Studies Department at the Philadelphia Bible College. And it turns out he's a native of Du Bois, PA. So he's actually local to where we're at. Very nice. But he went to be with the Lord, and he had a great teaching on it. So I'm definitely going to give him a lot of props because the structure of what we're going to be following for the most part is inspired by, by some of the research and some of the work that he's done. So my hat's off to Dr. Ronald Showers. Because he's he and I'll put all this stuff in the in the episode notes so people yeah. can kind of find out who he is and 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 see and learn more about him. But basically, at John fourteen verses one two three, and let's read that. Let's start there. But before we do that, which is customary for us, John fourteen. When we land where where we're at at John fourteen verse one two three, it really is the night before Jesus goes to die on a cross for the sins of the world. Right. There's a lot going on here. I mean, the triumphal entry has already taken place. They've greeted him as, you know, a king, okay? And that all happened. Um, the Son of Man it has to be lifted up, okay? And that's what, what I mean by that is that Jesus is in this constant discourse with his followers, telling him how he must be lifted up, how he must die, how, we, how he must be put to death. And not everyone is really getting that, and that's putting, no, some, they con- miss it. That's putting some confusion, and it's putting some, uh, um, some despair into the heart of the disciples and even the apostles, the one closest to him. So this is, the washing of the feet has happened. They're having the supper. Jesus exposes Judas as the betrayer. Okay, not that everyone understood that, but he does expose that one of them will betray them, and they're all trying to figure out who that was. So it's it's a tough time, not only for the Lord Jesus Christ, because he knows he's going to the cross in just a few short hours, but there's a lot of despair. There's a lot of of anxiety in the room, and, and, you know, Jesus is trying to, kind of settle them down and give them some assurance and give them some comfort. And that's where John 14, 1, 3 does a, what we're going to launch from, where I think does Jesus does a good job of kind of settling everyone down and, and putting everything in the right place. So let me read it. John 14, verses 1, 2, 3. It says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, 
I would have told you, for I go to prepare, prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And what a comforting promise, right? Jesus is gathered with his disciples and he's in the upper room. He's knowing that he's going to be crucified in just a few hours. He already warned the disciples about his coming death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. And a prospect of these events have left them disturbed. And this is what Jesus offers to them as comfort. Now, for us living in modern Western culture, it's essential for us to understand the significance right. of what Jesus is promising here. Because Jews understood it in the t biblical times. Jesus, when he draws on the analogy of marriage and the customs in biblical times, they would understand, but we need to understand it better in order for us to put it in the right context. And that's true of any Bible study. You must understand the culture. You must understand the historical concept, context as well. And you, and you know that they understood it because even Paul in some of his writings referred to the bride. And we're going to get to that. Yeah, sorry. I just no. I was just wanted to put that out there because it's really cool when you start seeing they understood, you know, what Jesus was talking about and marriage and how it worked in the Jewish world. But go ahead. No, and you're absolutely right. And that's exactly where we're going, Christian. And that's exactly where we're going to bring everybody. And I think it's going to be eye opening. So Jesus drew an analogy through this statement in these three verses. And the analogy that he was drawing on was on marriage customs in biblical times. So it's necessary for us to understand what that is. So how did marriages work in the old times and the ancient times? Marriage was pretty much negotiated and matches involved an agreement and conditions and a payment for a bride, as a matter of fact. And usually that was worked out in advance between two families. Sometimes even the, the, the couple being married were very, very young. Right, right. Now, that was very customary. So typically the fathers used to arrange the match and the girls' consultation, sorry ladies, was merely a formality. Yep, yep, yep. Back in those days, that, that's all it was, really. The negotiations have been done and concluded and then the girl finds out who she's going to marry. Hopefully, it's people they know and it's someone that she loves and, and can learn to love, but that's how it was in those days. But that's how matches were negotiated. So during this era, a father was more concerned about marrying off his sons than his daughters because marrying off his daughter involved no expense. Right, right. Instead, the father received a dowry for her, and a dowry means whatever the agreed price was. So, so fathers were probably like, oh, man, I need to get my daughter married so I can receive that dowry. Right. Yeah. And, and if you think in Old Testament times, when you think right. about uh, um, um, Jacob and Isaac, and Isaac wanted to go yes. find a, a, a wife for him, and he sent one of his servants to find Rebecca, okay, he sent him with all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. in order to pay you know, the father for the person that, that the Lord had picked out for his son Isaac. So that was very customary. So the price the groom's father paid, okay? Now the groom's father is the one that paid the price, okay? The families agreed this, but the price was paid by the groom's father. And that price was called in, in, in Jewish terms, mohar. That was the price. That was the price that needed to pay, be paid for the agreement the negotiated match and whatever the conditions were that were kind of negotiated ahead of time. All right. But the first significant step, okay, in a Jewish marriage was the betrothal. And the betrothal involved establishing a marriage covenant. Now, by Jesus' time, it was customary for the prospective bridegroom to take the initiative and establish 
such a covenant. The prospective bridegroom would travel from his father's house to the prospective bride's home, and there he would negotiate with the young woman's father to determine the price or the mohar that he must be that he must pay to purchase the bride. Right. The marriage covenant was established once the bridegroom paid the purchase price. You also mentioned Isaac. Isaac was a very unusual case because remember, Isaac didn't go. He actually sent a servant to go get That's right. uh, Rebecca. So I thought that was really, uh, really interesting how, yeah, he sends gifts, but he doesn't go to go get the bride. Very unusual, but you know, that's just, it's still, it's still a custom though. Oh, absolutely. To send the gifts to, to buy the, the price. I mean, you know, when, when the servant showed up and Rebecca drew water for the, those who were familiar with the story, my man had a lot of stuff with him. Yeah. Camels, yeah. goods. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure Rebecca looked at this dude and said, this guy's got money. Who knows? But I mean, you know, th- he, he wasn't traveling light. Let me put it to you that way. That's right. All right. So once the marriage covenant was established, once the bridegroom paid the price, right, the young man and the woman were regarded as husband and wife. Mm. And if to get to put that into a better context, Joseph when he was betrothed to Mary, the mother of Jesus, right. this is what happened. He had met whatever the covenant was that he made with the father. He honored the price and they were married and Joseph went away and Mary was on her own until he can return to make it his wife. So then that starts making a little bit more sense because from that moment on, she was considered his bride. Right. There was no one that can step in and say, okay, I'm going to marry this woman. If Once you negotiated with the father, you paid the price. She was considered consecrated. That means set apart, sanctified, perfect. And that was the bride for this bridegroom exclusively. All right. So as a symbol of that covenant relationship that had been established when the bridegroom paid the price and, and with the father, the groom and the bride would drink from a cup of wine over which a betrothal benediction was pronounced. So once they agreed, families came together, I want to marry her, here's the price, they would do this, this drinking of the, of the wine, which was customary, and then the benediction would be a, uh, pronounced over these two, and they considered married, okay? And after establishing this marriage covenant, the groom would leave the bride's home and return to the father's house. Okay, which kind of puts into context why Mary was was Jesus's mom was visiting Elizabeth. Right, right. She had the time to go away and visit with her because Joseph took off. And where did he go? He separated himself and it typically was for about 12 months time. Right, right. About. And he would go back to his father's house to prepare a place for his wife because he was going to take her back home to his family, to his father's house. Man, getting married back then was, dude, it was, there was a lot of work involved. So you were married, but there was a whole year there that you didn't see your husband because he went back to prepare whatever apartment, condo. Usually it could be the father's house that he was preparing a room in the father's house, or he would prepare his own kind of place for the bride. Right, and I guess that all depends on how much money they had, but that that pretty much was it. So during the time, this bride would be also preparing herself as well too. She would gather her stuff together. It's called the trousseau, okay? And they would prepare for married life. She would prepare for his arrival. He would prepare a home for her, and she would gather all her personal possessions. And the groom occupied himself with with living accommodations in the father's house so that he can bring the bride after the separation. 
bring her home, okay? Yeah. But at the end of this period of separation, the groom would come and take his bride to live with him, okay? Now, here's where it gets interesting. When this happened, this usually used to happen at night. So here the groom, it's been a year, yep. about a year, and it's time for go get my wife because we've been married for a year. The house is ready. <laughs> She's got all the furniture, you know, she's actually she's getting her things together because her dowry is going to come with her. But he's preparing a place so she can put her things. OK, so it's the end of the separation. And typically when the bridegroom returned, it happened at night. And the bride and the groom and the best man and other male escorts, these are men that were close to the groom, okay, would leave the groom's father's house and conduct a torchlight procession to the bride's home. Male escorts now, we call them groomsmen. And then uh, the, <laughs> the, uh, the, um, uh, the, bri the bridesmaids is what the, uh, you know, who the bride's women are, or ser not servants, but women friends are. So that's, if you want to bring it into, what's it called? Um, modern vernacular. Modern, yeah, vernacular. That's what that is. Yeah. So although the bride was expecting the groom to come to her, she would not know the exact time of his arrival. Ooh, I'm seeing some. Okay, so this remember this typically ha happens at night. So just imagine the bridegroom's leaving his father's house. He's going through the streets with him and his buddies. Okay, with all the groomsmen. Is that the correct, correct term? Yeah, groomsmen. Yeah, yeah. All right, and they're going through the streets. Okay, and and they're on their way to the to the to the bride's house to go get her, but she doesn't know. Okay, so as a result, the groom's arrival would be preceded with a shout. Now, they would literally go down the street shouting, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Yes. Now, this was a warning that went out through the streets, block by block, street by street. And even people who were not part of the bridal bridegroom's, you know, um, uh, circle, circle of friends, yeah. you know, this groomsmen. OK, they would pick up the chant. And they would also chant. So there's no way, as this guy's coming through the streets, that the bride wouldn't hear in correct, the distance. Correct, correct. Here he comes, okay? Because everyone along the streets would also pick up the same shout and say, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. So That's the whole awesome. town would wake up and they'd yell, and she could tell from a distance, okay, it's time to snap into action. My man is coming. It's time to get ready. And, and that's exactly how she would know that he was coming. She had no idea. So this shot would be a warning for the bride to get, prepoom, get prepared for the uh, groom's arrival. So after the groom goes and receives his bride, which, by the way, doesn't always happen all the time that quickly because he may get there and she may not be ready. Because imagine she's summoning her women, right? right the women that are helping right. her to get prepared. So he could be hanging out in the streets for a little while waiting for her. Dang. OK, and that was pretty typical. Although she hears the shouts, she's got to pull herself together because right, the bridegroom right. is coming and he's going to get together. He's, she's got to get herself together. So he may wait a little bit, but he will wait. Even if it means waiting in the street, he will wait. She knows he's there and she knows that he is coming. OK, but at, but he will eventually receive his bride. OK, so after the groom has received his bride and and her female attendants, the wedding party would return to the bride's home to the groom's father's house. Now, this is the place that he had been preparing for like 12 months. And upon arrival, they would find that the guests are already assembled. That's okay? awesome. So this is a big deal. It's involved the whole, it woke up the whole town, basically. This guy right, wanted to right. pick up his wife. 
which is pretty awesome. So shortly after arriving, the bri arriving back at the father's house, of course, the bride and the groom would be escorted by the other wedding party members to what's called a bridal cham chamber. Now, imagine the bride, group, the bride and the bridegroom get there. He's got his wife. He's prepared a place for her, and they've got this reception going on. Okay, and the closest of the, the groomsmen and, and the females' attendants, uh, the bride's attendants, they would escort them from that reception area where the guests were waiting to a private area called the bridal chamber. Nice. Okay, so they would separate themselves from the rest of the guests after they've greeted everybody, of course. And this was also known as the hoopa. That's what's called the bridal chamber. It's called the hoopa. And before entering the chamber, the bride remained veiled, so no one can see her face. That's where we get the whole idea of the veil over the face from. Right. So while the groomsmen and the bridesmaid waited outside, the bride and the groom would enter the bridal chamber alone. There, in the privacy of that place, they would enter into physical union for the first time, thereby consummating the marriage that had been covenanted earlier, which had been promised when they drank the wine and they agreed to 12 months before. And okay. that's um, just to kind of uh, draw back to uh, Mary and Joseph. They didn't consummate it because he was waiting for her to kind of give birth to uh, baby Jesus. And that's why it was such a big deal when Joseph found out. Right, right, That right. Mary's pregnant. And he was like, wait a second, we only were betrothed. And I can't even I can't even consummate this now because you're pregnant. Right, and of course the angel came to him and told him what was going on that yeah, he, the yeah. Holy Spirit had come upon her. But I mean, it makes you appreciate Joseph. Of course, of that, course. That took faith for him to to follow the Lord and 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 do what the angel told him to do. That's a that's a rough thing because we'll get into a little bit later on. But you know, there's some infidelity in that time. It, there's possibility say, of infidelity yeah. in that time while the bridegroom's away for twelve months. That a woman could, you know, you know, give herself over to someone else. Hopefully not, but it can and happen. You can see the patience of. I like how you said that the patient patience of Joseph and you know how he's kind of handling all of this because, you know, there were laws back in the time. If you felt like your wife was, you know, being promiscuous to you, it would be uh, they would do uh, some sort of ceremony where they would drink some bitter water. And if it, um, I forget how the ceremony works, but it's back in. I think it's in numbers uh, somewhere around there, but uh, they would drink this water and call the it's called bitter water. And through this whole process, they could figure out if she was pregnant or not. Yeah. And he had every right to divorce her as well. Right, right, right. And it would have to be a legal divorce because remember, betrothal means marriage. Correct. So correct. Joseph actually could have backed out at that point and said, I don't want to marry here anymore. And um, thank God he did not. And uh, he was faithful to that. He's one of those understated characters that you can't help but love the way that he just conducted himself throughout the I whole agree, thing. I agree. I agree. So God loved Joseph. And we don't hear much about him after, you know, that Jesus starts his ministry. He kind of, he's assumed dead and must have died young. But what a man, okay? So once the marriage in the marriage chamber has been consummated, the groom would announce the consummation, okay, to the other members of the wedding party who were waiting outside the cha chamber. I mean, he basically comes out, it's done. <laughs> 
And, and John 3.29 kind of highlights that a little bit. It says, He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And that's, of course, quoting from John 3.29. But it puts into context just exactly what's going on there. And really, it's the joy of hearing that these two people have come together Okay, and the marriage has been consummated. All right, so that's great news, not just for those close to the bride and the groom, but also for all those attending the wedding as well, too. So these individuals would share the news of the marriage with the wedding guests, and the wedding guests would go celebrate and feast. And I believe that the feast went on for like seven days. Yeah, yeah after receiving that news of the consummation. So during these seven days, the wedding festivities would continue. And this is also knows, known as the seven days of Chopa. Right. I remember living in Brooklyn and hearing that from some of the Jews. They celebrated the seven days of Chopa. And the bride remained hidden in the bridal chamber for those seven days. So he consummates the marriage. That's announced. Everyone rejoices, but she doesn't come out of the bridal chamber for seven That's days. Wild. No one sees her throughout the whole celebration. Now, at the end of the seven days, at the end of this period, the groom would bring out his bride out of the chamber, unveiling her so that everyone can see who she was. Isn't that a wonderful picture? And, and that's basically how ancient marriages in, in right, Jewish times, right. in Jesus' time, that's how it was. And there was a lot of, like you said, a lot of uh, uh, band musicians. Sometimes they would have bands, musicians coming all the way from the place the, uh, the bridegroom picked up the, uh, uh, the bride and going back to the father's house or wherever he prepared the place for. And you can see that now in weddings, the whole veil idea. Um, I mean, it's... People don't do it a lot, but when it's done, it's actually really neat. But uh, we've cut that shorter in the modern day because it's no longer seven days. It's, you know, you wait kind of a couple of hours. Bride, uh, the guests are waiting for the ceremony to see that bride walking down the aisle. Right. And on occasions, you will get the whole veil over the face if they're... Um, if they're more um, old school in that sense, not a lot of brides do, like I said, the uh, uh, um, the veil over the face. But um, it's really neat because when they go up into uh, the uh, the altar, that's when the, the groom would pull that back. So it's really cool how to see back in those times, it's a seven day period. Now it's modernized and it's a kind of a couple of hour type of type of period. I don't know about you. I like wedding. I love weddings. Oh, I yeah. We say, I like weddings. I actually love going to weddings yeah you invite me to a wedding that's for seven days i'm there dude <laughs> i am there because i have a blast at weddings yeah 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 <laughs> no they're pretty cool they're really they really are really but you're cool. right it's it's we have kind of a condensed version of that nowadays okay so we go through that history and we go through that teaching with you folks because Really, it's how we're going to examine this analogy that Jesus uses in John 14, right? Because we said previously that Jesus had mentioned the use of this analogy during these three verses that we read. And um, Jewish marriage customs in biblical times were used to make a promise. And this is what Jesus did in John 14, those first three verses. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, that would be familiar for Jewish people at the time, for us it's not so familiar. 
So when we examine this analogy, the first thing to take note is that the scriptures refer, and not just take note, but we need to understand that the scriptures refer to the church as the bride of Christ. That's something that, if you're in your Bible, you know that's, that's the case. Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 23 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, and the church also is the head of uh, Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior and the body. And we go to Revelation 19, verses 7 through 8. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now that's starting to sound a little familiar based yes. on the context of what we've been talking about. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. And it was given to her, verse 8, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, and the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So the church is referred to in Scripture as the bride, and that's right. important to remember, okay? So let's flush out this analogy even more. In addition, just as the Jewish bridegroom took the initiative in the marriage by leaving his father's house and traveling to the prospective bride's home, as we describe, Jesus left his father's house in heaven. Right. And traveled where? He came here to earth, the home of his prospective bride, the church. And that happened over 2,000 years ago. So just as a Jewish bridegroom would come to the bride's home to establish a marriage covenant to obtain her, Jesus did the same thing. He came to earth and established a covenant to obtain the church, which was his bride. Okay? So on that same night, okay, Jesus made the promise in, in, in John 14. He instituted that new covenant, okay? And we read it, right? We'll go back and read it again, right? He says, In my Father's house, verse 2, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, verse 3, I will, be, I will come and receive you to myself. So where there I am, you may be also. So that's the promise that Jesus is making, okay? So when he instituted this, okay, he did it in the same way that we just read. It, it, he did it with a cup. He did it with a cup. When he passed the cup around and he made this promise, he instituted the communion. Some people call it a communion. We call it the Lord's Supper. But that same night when he made that promise, he instituted it as a new covenant, a new promise. And he passed the cup to his disciples and he said, this is the cup of my new, um, of a new covenant in my blood. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11.25. So he makes this new promise and it's the same covenant we saw right, with the bride right. and the groom get betrothed. They promise to be married and they drink from the cup. Jesus is doing the same thing here. He's saying, this is the cup this is a new covenant in my blood. This way, this is Jesus' way of saying that he will establish a new covenant through the shedding of his blood on a cross. Because remember, that's just going to happen just a few hours from where this conversation is taking place in John 14. So similar to the customs of the Jewish groom paying the price, the purchase price for the bride, what do you think the price is that Jesus is paying? He's paying with his own lifeblood, with yep. his own blood. Yep. Okay. 
And, you know, that's it, it, it parallels just exactly with what happens in a marriage ceremony in Jewish times, because there is a price to pay if you're going to take on the bride, that bride right. being the church. And the price that Jesus pays, of course, is his blood. Now, was that a, um, you know, looking back at that was, you know, because it was the father's, it usually is the father who kind of uh, consider, considers it their kind of like duty to kind of pick and secure wives for their sons. I mean, you see this with Judah. You see this with, I think Abraham tells uh, one of his sons not to uh, get a woman from a certain place, but, you know, secure a wife from a certain this family. Place. Right, certain right. Tribe, yeah. And so um, you kind of see this uh, kind of imitation that, you know, since we're created in man's, I mean, not man's image, I'm sorry, since we're created in God's image, you see this with God in the beginning securing a wife for Adam being, you know, a father, you know, because uh, the scripture says that, you know, we're all children of God now, not spiritually, but in a sense created by God. So God is the created father uh, of all of us. But um, you also see that uh, God, the father is also purchasing a bride um, and giving the mo Mohar, is how you say it? Mohar? Mohar giving the mohar of his son the purchase price to the the bride so that he can receive her i mean i go back to john 6 44 where it says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him that's right yeah yeah make no mistake that the price that was being paid for this bride was a high price and it was the blood of christ which he knew i mean remember we started reading john 14 there was despair in the room everyone was discouraged and and jesus made this promise because it was a comfort to them it was supposed to be a comfort to them don't worry i am leaving but i'm coming back to take you with me and he makes this new covenant he says you are my bride passes the cup makes the covenant in his own blood it's definitely a high price. And, and Paul talks about this. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20. He says, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So Paul even acknowledges this, what we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. What Jesus was doing in this room with his disciples is exactly what Paul is acknowledging here. You were bought as a price. You are not your own anymore. You came at a very high price. And there was no such mohar like God's mohar in purchasing the bride through the payment and the lifeblood of Jesus Christ. Um, it's it's a perfect mohar. It's the most expensive mohar you could ever. More valuable than yes, gold, camels, right. you name it. Absolutely. Good point, Christian. So just as the Jewish bride was declared to be sanctified and set apart exclusively for the groom, once the marriage covenant was established, which Jesus just did with his own blood, excuse me, the church has been declared to be sanctified as well and set apart for Christ. And we see that in Ephesians 5. Again, we read this before, right? The way that Christ loved the church, he gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5, 25, verse 25. Mm. Okay? So, I mean, there's the price that was paid, okay? And let me see, 1 Corinthians 4, 2 also says that in 1 Corinthians verse uh, chapter 1, 1, 2, yes, yeah, sorry. To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Jesus, called the saints, with all, with 
all who are in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Okay. So, I mean, there's a lot here as far as like scriptures tying this all together and it's starting to make a, a little bit more sense. Yeah. It's really cool when you look at it. Yeah. Hebrews 10.10, another place. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So there's a lot of scriptures that kind of confirm what Jesus is doing here. All right, so let's go on. So just as the cup of wine served as a symbol of the marriage covenant by which a Jewish groom obtained his bride, the cup of communion, the cup of the, at the Lord's Supper serves as a symbol of the covenant through which Christ obtained the church. Now, what a beautiful picture. And I was blessed by this because, you know, the Lord's Supper is a very important time in worship. I know we do it in our church at the first yeah. Sunday of the month. And it, it's given me just another dimension to kind of look at the whole yeah, Lord's Supper. Yeah. You know, it's more than just, hey, I'm going to give my body for you at the cross. I, I'm seeing the whole covenant. I'm seeing the whole promise. I'm seeing the price that he paid as a groom to obtain us as a church. And, and the symbolism of that, it really is profound. When I look at the, the communion now, when I look at the Lord's Supper in church now, it really has been a blessing to have this perspective and look at that. I would agree. I mean, it's literally a great reminder of the new covenant relationship we now have in Christ to pretty much be seen by God as holy and blameless. And, um, and it's Christ's perfect example of the duty of a husband's love toward his wife yeah. in how um, he, he does this. Uh, the symbolism is just amazing. It really is. So 1 Corinthians 11.25 says, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Just a beautiful picture. Now I, I think of marriage when I see that. And what a beautiful picture that is. So that's the, that's, that's the new covenant that Jesus established. That's the cup that he drank in order to obtain his bride. And the price, the mohar that was paid, was Jesus' blood. Okay? So Jesus goes on to die, obviously, on the cross shortly after having those comforting words, you know, uh, dispersed among the, uh, his disciples and apostles. So, but just as the Jewish groom would have to leave the home of the bride, and returned to his, father, his father's house after the marriage covenant had been established, Jesus did the same thing. He left earth, which is the home of the church, and he returned to his father's house, as we read in John 14. He went back to heaven to establish, after establishing the new covenant and rising from the dead. Okay? And, and we see this uh, also as well, too. Um, there was a part here in John 6, where Jesus was, saw some grumbling among the crowd and they wouldn't believe that he was who he was saying he was. And he says in John 6, verse 61 to 62, he says, But Jesus, knowing himself that the disciples were grumbling at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? And he says, What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Right, right. So he's acknowledging that he's going back to the Father. He's going back to the Father's house to separate himself yep. for that period that the Jewish bride and groom separate themselves. And, 
we're living in that period now. It's more than obviously 12 months. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but Christ has remained separated from the church for over 2,000 years. And, and this, is the, this is the period of history that we're living in, that we're currently living right now, within that separation period where he made the covenant and sealed it with, with the promise and, and, and passed the wine and established the communion, communion, the Lord's Supper out of it, and he was separated from him, and that's the period we live in. You were going to say something, Christian? Yeah, I was just going to say that you see this earlier in John. Uh, even when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, uh, uh, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. So even Jesus is telling him there that I've come from a far place, to come here so you see that that are really really early on in chapter 3 of, of John before he even gets to chapter 14 so you kind of see that sprinkled throughout just wanted to mention that because it came to mind I'm glad you're thinking that way because that's exactly why this teaching I think is going to be so important for our listeners yeah, because yeah. I think it's going to open up your understanding yep and, and you're going to look at the scriptures a little bit more differently now understanding how these this custom plays through the gospel and we're going to yeah. tie it into a, a, a even nicer bow at the end so one more thing before we take our break okay Okay, so Jesus, okay, similar to what we see in Jewish tradition, the groom is, goes to prepare living accommodations, okay, for his bride. He's no longer with the bride. He's no longer on earth. He's back in his Father's house in, he in heaven. And during this period of separation, what is he doing? He's preparing a place for the church in his heavenly Father's house. And during that separation time, this is where we're at. This is where we wait. This is the time that we live in. So let's take our quick break right now. We'll come back, and then we'll finish this off. We are privileged and excited that you joined us today. Please remember to visit our episode notes. They contain links to scripture, any information we reference during the show, and a link to join our mailing list to receive the latest show news and updates. If you want to send us your questions, provide feedback, or submit an idea for a future episode, we want to hear from you. Just use the Join the Conversation link provided to contact us. Want to get to know us better? Then we encourage you to use the Core Truth Media link provided in our episode notes to visit our coretruthmedia.org homepage. You can connect with us via social networks from that page and explore the diverse range of podcasts and high-quality content our ministry offers to those seeking to deepen their understanding of the Bible and grow in their faith. Finally, we invite you to help us communicate God's truth throughout the globe. Anyone can listen to this show for free everywhere podcasts are available. Click the listen and follow link in our episode notes and share it with your friends and family. You'll be glad you did. We appreciate your support. Now let's get back to our show. Welcome back, folks. We're excited to continue here. And where we left off is Jesus returned back to heaven to his father's house to prepare a place for us. What a wonderful, beautiful thought. So while Jesus is back preparing in, back in heaven, which is where he came from, and Christian, you're absolutely right, that, that conversation with Nicodemus just has a little bit more power to it. Yeah. Because if you look at the context of what we're talking about, I think it has, adds a lot of gravitas to a lot of things that we read in Scripture. So just as the Jewish groom would come to take his bride to live with him at the end of this period of separation, so Christ will also come to take his church, to live with him at the end of this period of separation from, from the church, okay? The taking of the church will be similar to the taking of the Jewish bride. In both cases, a profession a procession is involved. For the Jewish bride, the procession consists of the groom 
and male escorts traveling from the groom's father's house to the bride's home, right? That's when the bride was waiting. She didn't know when the groom was coming. Right. And the groom is going from the father's house to the bride's home. And that's where Jesus is right now. That's where we're waiting. We're, we're the bride of Christ. This corporate body of believers considered the bride of Christ is right now waiting for its groom to return. So in the case of the church, the procession will consist of Christ and an angelic escort traveling from Christ's father's, from Jesus's father's house in heaven to the new home of the, to the home of the church. Okay, so let me paint the picture here. So we're waiting as the bride of Christ, waiting for the bridegroom to return. Yeah. And Jesus, in, in similar fashion to what we saw before, he's going to have escorts as well, too. Except his escorts, when he leaves heaven to get his bride, are going to be an angelic escort. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, traveling, okay, from the house in heaven, the Father's house, to the church. Okay, and I think we see this in First Thessalonians four sixteen. For the Lord Himself, First Thessalonians four sixteen, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now that's all starting to make sense, now, isn't it? So just as the Jewish bride did not know the exact time of the groom's arrival, the church doesn't know either the precise time of Christ's arrival and what time it was going to you know come to take her the church okay and go ahead you you see this too with the whole shouting i just wanted to uh, point it out i'm uh, glad you're going there go ahead. dude uh matthew 25 you see it uh with the parable of the 10 bridesmaids or the 10 virgins um yeah, then the kingdom of heaven may be compared to ten virgins who took their lamp and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were foolish and five were prudent. You guys know this kind of parable. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flask along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him that's right so even this parable in here kind of brings in and ties this whole idea of what jewish customs you know jewish uh um processions uh when the bridegroom would come for the bride right yeah so just as the groom is preceded with a shout as he going through as he's going through the streets of the town where the bride lives jesus will also come preceded by a shout. Now, let me ask you something, Christian. The voice of the archangel, what do you think he will be saying? The bride, the bridegroom is here. The bridegroom behold, behold, the yeah. bridegroom comes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which we probably never think of that when we read that right, verse. Right, right, right. But if you put it in a context of marriage, what else is the archangel going to say? The whole world is going to hear that shout. And behold is a strong word. It's like, you, attention here. Here's a command attention. Because this is very, very important. I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 4.16 again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. He's going to leave the Father's house. And the archangel will, will the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead of Christ and Christ will rise. So that shout is going to be, behold, the bridegroom comes and the dead 
will rise. Yep, the church yep. will rise to meet him. And what what musical instrument will be playing too? Because there's again, sometimes they well, have musical instruments. We playing. know there's a trumpet. That's right. It, That's it's, right. It's mind blowing to think that the world is going to hear that. Okay. I know. Now we're talking about the rapture in case you you folks haven't put that together, but that's basically what's going to happen. The bridegroom is going to return. The trumpet's going to blow. The archangel's going to announce the bridegroom is coming, and the bride is going to leave. So just as the Jewish bride returns with the groom to his father's house after leaving her home, the church will return with Christ to his father's house in heaven. Right. Now, this will occur after the church has been snatched up from the earth to meet him in the air. And we see that in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. It says, then, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord, okay? Now think about it. The bridegroom goes through the streets. They're shouting through the streets. The bride can hear him coming through town. Right, right. He may not be ready, but he's waiting. He's waiting for her to come. So that means that Jesus is going to be the outer atmosphere waiting for the bride, and the bride is going to come up to meet him. And that's exactly where we're at in this uh, this Thessalonians 4.17. We'll be caught up with him in the clouds. Now this whole us rising up to meet him in the air makes sense because that's what happened in Jewish weddings. The bride came out and the bridegroom was there waiting for her. Boy, it's so fascinating how God just uses the uh, analogy of marriage to kind of tie in the payment of sin and Jesus coming and doing all these things for a purpose. He makes it so relatable to what we do now. So now the church is absent from the earth and now the whole earth is witnessed this shout they've heard the trumpet they may have not seen the bridegroom but the bride met him in the air and she's gone she is now back at the father's house at the place that he went to prepare for his bride right right. okay so the return to the father house so similar to what a jewish wedding party would do there they return and they find assembled what wedding guests in the groom's father's house upon the arrival. Christ and the church will find the souls, not the bodies, but the souls of the Old Testament saints that have been assembled in heaven upon their arrival. Okay? These souls will serve as the wedding guests. So here's the bride, meets Christ in the air. He takes her back to the father's house, and guess who's waiting there? Everyone who died waiting for the Messiah. Yeah, wow. And here's wow. the church. The bride has come. Now, if you were listening before, what happens next? There's going to be a party for seven days. That's people. right. Okay. It's going to be a little bit different here, but it's along the same line. So similar to Jewish custom, the groom and the bride enter into a physical union at the father's house. Okay. Thereby consummating the marriage. So the bride is now in heaven with Christ and the marriage is being consummated because it was cov- there was a covenant to seal it earlier. Remember, Jesus did that with his blood. Right, right. With the wine, okay? Christ and the church will experience a spiritual union after arriving at the Father's house, thereby consummating their relationship that had been covenanted earlier, that was promised earlier. So like the Jewish bride remaining hidden in the bridal chamber for seven days after the arrival of the groom at the Father's house with his bride, the church also remains hidden in heaven 
for seven years, not seven days, but seven years. This is the time of tribulation, like I was saying before, that we see in Revelation. Now this, this whole seven-year tribulation makes sense because there's a party up in heaven. There's a wedding that's going on. Nice. The bride is now with Christ, and for seven years, after arriving at Christ's Father's house, that's the seven-year tribulation period that takes part at earth. Because remember, the church is not going to be here. It's going to be in heaven. Right. And, and, the, and what happens? Just like the bride was hidden for those seven days, the church is going to be hidden for seven years. No one will see the church. Now, I ask you, Christian, what kind of world is that going to be when the church is lifted out of here for seven years? Who knows? No one's going to see her. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. The party's up in heaven, and it's not going to be down here. The church is going to be completely hidden from the sight of those living on earth. Let me ask you something here real quick, because this dawned on me. Who is the best man to Jesus? I don't know. You got me on that one. You got, I got you on that one. Here it is. Ready? Uh, where was I here? Um, John. Go to John 3.29, and you'll see it. We kind of touched on it again. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Who's saying that? Got me. Tell me. The one who says, behold, the Lamb of God, ah. John the Baptist. Mm, or it could be the archangel. Well, that, because that if, did you, the shout? if you look at here, um, if you look here, uh, it talks about, I mean, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Um, because remember the Jesus comes from the father's house to come into get the bride. Right. And so when people hear him coming into the town or into the city or wherever he was, he's shouting, but Jesus isn't the one who shouts. It's John who tells his disciples, behold, the lamb of God. It could be. Could yeah. Be. So just it de definitely a best man there somewhere yeah, 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 yeah. doing the shouting. It could be the archangel. That's another one that says, behold, the, the groom, the bridegroom is coming. But that's getting into the weeds a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. but I'm hoping that everyone's getting the analogy here, and, and really you're cool. seeing how the analogy is really making sense of the Book of Revelation. This seven-year tribulation period is going to be horrible, because not only will Christ be absent, because he is celebrating his consummation with his bride, the Church in heaven. Okay, um, it's going to be a, a terrible time on earth. All right. So that's final supper. Okay. That that ends that that signifies. Um, let me see. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Uh, the final supper that will signify the end of the ceremony, okay, will take place at the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So there's a final supper that happens, okay, and it happens after this seven day period is done. Okay, we have to go to look at Revelation 19.9 to see that. It says, Blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. How many times have we read that and not really understood that? Right, right. Okay, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So at the end of this tribulation period, there's going to be a marriage supper. Okay, that's where the bride is going to be unveiled. Nice. She's going to come out of the bridal chamber and the whole bridal uh celebration all the yes, people the guests, the guests everyone will see see her there okay and wow. although the term bride typically refers to the church it ultimately expands to include all those who have been redeemed throughout the history and throughout the ages and this mm. is made clear as you read 
on through Revelation, especially forward of Revelation 19. But there's going to be a big celebration in heaven. Man. When that bride is revealed and she's unveiled and the marriage is consummated, and that's when Christ comes to, he returns for his second coming, okay? Everyone's going to see the bride. The church, the bride is coming with him. The church is coming with yeah, him. Yeah. And Jesus will establish his millennial kingdom here on earth. And that's the second coming of Christ. Boy, imagine that sight. But it's not until that final supper that signifies the end of the marriage ceremony takes place. And as I read in Revelation 19, 19, 9, blessed are those who invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because those are the people who are part of that corporate collective body called the bride of Christ, which are the saved. And as I said before, it's, it's the church, definitely. But it's all those in the Old Testament that were waiting for the Messiah. David will be there. Abraham hey, will be wow. there. All these saints of old will be there at this marriage supper. What a celebration. And I'm glad that I'm going to be there because we're going to be the ones lifted up from the earth to meet Christ in the sky. We're going to be there for that. Like I was saying before, I'd love to go to a wedding that lasts for seven days. This one's going to last seven years. (laughs) (laughs) I'm clapping because that's going to be awesome. And we will be there. Thank, thank the Lord for that. So what a wonderful way to put this analogy together. And, and and I hope that this has been a benefit for everyone to kind of tie that all together. I think it's been very enlightening for not just Christian, but hopefully all you as well. Now let's tie this to the gospel. This is where I I think it's going to get even a little bit more interesting. Okay, so now that we've learned about Jewish marriage customs and how this analogy relates to the relationship of Christ and with the church, it's not only beneficial, Christian, but it's also beautiful, okay? But what is the practical significance of that today? Like what does knowing about ancient Jewish customs have to do with us, okay, today? If you're a Bible student like we are, it means a lot because it opens up our understanding to the scriptures. It does. It really does. This is what Jesus had in mind in in John 14 when he was making that comforting promise to his disciples. Okay. Well, there's two things I want to discuss here because I think that it's practical in two ways. First, if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's essential to note that he died on the cross for you and he died for your sins and he established a new covenant. And through this new covenant, you can have a special relationship with him as a member of his bride, as a member of the church. So that's the first significant thing that I get from trying to tie this all together. Okay, And, you know, every time someone hears the gospel, Christian, we have to think, and I don't take credit for this. I got this from, from, from Dr. Uh, Renald. Um, he's the one who, who thought about this, and I think it was brilliant. But every time that you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, he invites you to a special relationship with him. And it's really equivalent to Jesus saying to you, I, Jesus, okay, this is the groom talking, choose you, the sinner, to be my bride. I promise and commit before God the Father and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful Savior and bridegroom. This includes times of sickness, health, plenty, want, joy, sorrow, faithfulness, and waywardness for now and for all eternity. And that puts a really interesting perspective on the gospel because the gospel message now is not just a, a, a message of hope and life. It's the Savior himself proposing, okay, making a covenant with you, choosing you and saying, be part of my bride. Yeah. 
What a beautiful picture that is. It's his vow to us. It's it's his vow to us, and we can be a part of it. So just as a Jewish bridegroom's proposal can be accepted or rejected, because she she may not say, I don't want to marry this guy, but the same way that you can accept or reject that proposal, Christ's proposal to you can be accepted or rejected as well. So if you reject it in your lifetime, you will spend an eternity separated from Christ in the eternal lake of fire. And the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20, 11, I mean, 20, 11 through 17. I mean, that's where you'll be. You'll come to see, know who the Lord is, right. but you'll be seeing him as judge. And, and it makes sense when you read the scriptures and he says, go away from me because I don't know you. Of course, he doesn't know you. If you're not in Christ, you're not his bride. How right, He hasn't right. consummated anything with you. Okay. The gospel's important because it really is, and, and Christians say this all the time, and they have to be applauded for it. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and it's so true. It's so personal that I'm his bride. Yeah, yeah. And if you're a believer, you're part of that whole corporate body that's called believers, and you're the bride as well, too. And you, and we understand, like you were talking about what Paul said, we were purchased with a price. We were purchased with it. So it means a lot to us. And you're right. It's very personal and it's a very intimate thing because we understand the payment of sin uh, that Jesus uh, paid for and how he did it, suffering and dying on a cross. Amen. A price was paid and a high one as well. So if you accept Christ's proposal, your sins will be forgiven. And if you become and you will become part of his bride, if you accept that, okay, you become a believer. You also be with him when he comes to take the church. And you'll remain with him forever, just as he said, I go to prepare a place for you, all right? So to accept his proposal, okay, all you need to do is repent from your sin, acknowledge that you're a sinner, repent from that sin, believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he died for your sins, and when he rose to the dead, he went to heaven to prepare a place for his bride. That's right. And you can be part of that. It really is that simple. So that's definitely... A perspective, the first perspective that comes to mind here is the unbeliever. What the gospel is really a marriage proposal, and all you have to do is accept it. And, and you can respond in this manner, okay? I, as a sinner, choose you, Jesus, to be my Savior. And I promise and commit before God that those present and those present to be your loving and faithful spouse in sickness and in health, in times of abundance and scarcity in happiness and in sadness for the duration of my life and for eternity. Now it puts I into perspective that. the I whole marriage that. vows. That's cool. Everybody does these at the altar, but they don't understand yes. the significance of it. There's a gospel message even in these vows. Even in these vows is a gospel message. In the same way, marrying the daughter involves no expense. Okay, so fathers marrying off their daughters it required no expense. There is no expense to be given to become the bride. You don't earn your way to become the bride. It is by the Father's grace that you are chosen. Amen. Amen. What a beautiful picture we're painting yeah, here, Christian, yeah. really. Now, the second thing that I think this analogy has some practical usefulness to us We've talked about unbelievers. Let's talk about people who do know the Lord, okay? Because this is essential for Christians to understand as well. So just as the Jewish bride had the potential, and we talked about this before a little bit, had the potential during that 12-month separation from the groom, because remember, we're living in a period where Christ is returned to prepare a place for us, okay? We're the betrothed bride of Christ, and guess what? We need to be faithful. 
Mm. Okay. But in that time, there's a potential to commit adultery before the bridegroom comes. So true. And believers today can also commit spiritual adultery against Christ before his eventual return. And why do I know this? Because Paul expressed a concern about this and the possibility when he when he preached the gospel to the to the Corinthians, he said this, for I am jealous. This is second Corinthians chapter 11, verses two to three. He said, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Okay, now why the Corinthians are probably like, why are you so why are you so jealous? And he goes on to say, for I betrothed you to one husband so that I may present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that as a serpent deceived Eve at, by his craftiness, craftiness, your minds will be corrupted from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So here is Paul pleading with the Corinthians, okay, I've presented you the gospel, I've brought you the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you've accepted it. Now I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy because I don't want you to be unfaithful yeah. to him and be deceived. So there's a danger in this time that we're living in that we will be unfaithful to our Lord, unfaithful to our groom. Okay, And James expressed the same concern also when he rebuked Christians, when he says in James 4.4, 4, we covered this in episode 10, yeah. True and Perfect Love, you adulteresses, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Now, James is concerned, just like Paul was, about the, the, the condition of the bride of Christ. It, it really, we talked about this adulterous phrase in James 4 all the time. It makes perfect sense. You are the bride of Christ. Yeah, yeah. In this period that we're waiting for the bride, bridegroom to return, be faithful to him. Yep, yep. Do not give yourself over to the world. It is spiritual adultery. And look what was happening with uh, Israel. I mean, if you get a chance, read Ezekiel 16, chapter 16, and you'll hear the cry of God's heart towards Israel to the point in verse 32 of chapter 16, he calls them, he calls them the harlot a couple of times before them. But in verse 32, he says, you adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. And, and man, it broke my heart when I read chapter 16, because I'm like, man, Lord, like you, even though we're unfaithful, you remain faithful to us. And so I'm, I'm sure James is expressing the same way uh, God is expressing to Israel in Ezekiel when he says, you adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Yeah. And James is concerned about that. We've yeah. got to, you know, we got to prioritize Christ over the system that we live in. So as a believer, we have to assess, really assess our devotion to Christ. Is he's still the center of your life? Are your actions and attitudes motivated by love for Christ or the desire for the world? I mean, we covered that. I'm telling you, episode 10, go back and listen to that, folks. Yeah. Because that's true and perfect love. To be devoted to the groom and to love him and not betray him. Okay, now it happens. It's very easy, or very easy to fall into adulterous, spiritual adultery. Mm -hmm. 
when you're a Christian and not do what you're supposed to do. But you know what? Confess it. Confess your unfaithfulness to the heavenly bridegroom. Trust in the Holy Spirit to renew your devotion and just wait for his eminent return. You know, one comfort, and when you were talking about uh, Ezekiel, I thought back to Hosea and Gomer. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Hosea was commanded by God to marry an unfaithful woman. And that unfaithful, and that really is a picture of God's relationship with Israel. Yeah. He's so faithful, and his bride is so unfaithful to him. But it says in 2 Timothy Timothy 2.13, it says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Amen. For he cannot deny himself. That doesn't give us permission to do the wrong thing. doesn't give us permission to betray the bridegroom. doesn't give us permission to do anything and just come back and say, oh, forgive me. No, this is, this is an attitude of devotion. This is an attitude of love that we should have for our Savior, yeah. for our bridegroom, who is preparing eternity for us. Yeah. And he's coming back for us. We need to be faithful. And the only way you're going to be faithful is really out of true love. If you love the Savior, you will be faithful to him. Because it says right there in 2 Timothy 2.13, he is faithful and he remains faithful. Yep, in everything, in In everything. everything, in everything. And so the heavenly bridegroom can come at every moment, any moment. And not even Jesus, when he was on earth, knew the time and coming. Right, right. Okay, but it's coming, folks. It's coming. And you don't know when it's coming. And are you ready? That's my question. Are you ready? Okay. If you haven't received Christ as your Savior, guess what? You're not the bride. When God comes and Jesus comes and that shout and that trumpet sounds, the church is lifted, you're going to be left behind. Yes. And if you're a believer and you're acting like you're more in love with the world than you are with Christ, then you got some work to do there too. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know I'm coming off strong after this teaching, but this is what I get when I see this because it's a perspective that we need to have. This this groom put a lot on the line for us. He did. He did. He put a lot on the line for us. And I hope that understanding marriage and how Jewish customs tie into this gives you a little bit deeper, more understanding just just exactly how, how much of a sacrifice this is and just exactly what's coming as well, too. Right, right. It really does. So, I mean, my question to our listeners out there, that if we know that the bridegroom is coming and he can come at any moment, whether you've been redeemed or not, are you ready? Are you ready? It's a great question. And I'm going to read John 14, verses 1, 2, 3, and then we'll leave it there. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I don't know how better to leave it than with that. Amen. So you got anything else to add before we go? No, I mean, it just comes through like before. It's like, you know, we don't, there's nothing that you can do to earn to be a bride of Christ. It's coming, you know, we talked about this in one of our podcasts, uh, our other podcast, uh, God gives grace to the humble. 
And, you know, at one point, you know, the same way God tells Hosea to get a prostitute for himself is the same way God is doing that in turn that, you know, Romans um, 5.8 says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. These are the these are things that God is not telling just Hosea to do these things. He's also doing that, purchasing something that is unwanted. We were dead. We were without um, any life, spiritual life in us. And God demonstrates His own love toward us in saving us and 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 giving, paying a a high mohar so that we could be reconciled to Him. And again. This is not by works that you get this. It's the same way, in the same exact way that a a bride doesn't earn her husband, it is given to her. It's the same way we don't earn that. It is only by repentance, which means turning from your sin. And it is why Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6, where he says, Do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Um, and how he says you were bought for with a high price, therefore glorify God in your body. Amen. So it's turning from the things that don't please God, turning from those things in thought, deed, and word that don't glorify God. And then the second thing is trusting in Jesus Christ, that he paid for your sins on the cross in full, and there's nothing that you can do to earn it. Just put on the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be your bridegroom and you will have certainty that when he comes and he calls, guess what? You'll be with him. Amen. And it's pure grace that he even chose any of us. That's right. You know, like we said before, even the bride has really nothing to do with the whole arrangement. Right. <laughs> I had nothing to do with my salvation either, but, you know, it was kind of a formality there when he came go. to me. But I, I'm exactly. glad. I'm glad that he chose me, and I'm glad that he showed up with his with his price, with the mohar that was necessary, that satisfied God and, and made me a bride along with the rest of the collective body of believers. It's really a beautiful thing, you know. I'm glad that we were able to look at this, and I'm, I'm glad that it, that, that it opened up my understanding, and I'm sure it'll open up the understanding of a lot of the believers out there as well, too. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. Thank you, Christian. That was phenomenal. Thank you, Alex. I just want to encourage everyone to go ahead and promote us. Go in our episode notes, and there's a link there to listen and follow. Take that link. Share it with family. Share it with friends. We've got some great content here, folks. This is content you should not keep to yourself. This is content that will help other people open up their understanding to the scripture. So go ahead and just, we just ask that you just take that link, listen and follow, and just share it. People can listen to it on any platform that they want, whether it be Apple, Google, Spotify, it doesn't matter. And when you're on those platforms listening to our podcast, do us a favor, give us a good rating. It helps promote our podcast. If you give us uh, five stars, we'd appreciate that. It helps get this message out there to more people. And I know Apple has a, a button that you can follow. Some call it subscribe. Go ahead and do that, too. Yeah, so when sure. we release a new episode, you automatically get it downloaded to your device and to your computer. And, of course, if you're out there listening and this is a value to you, you know what? Support us. It's all in our episode notes where you'll find other content that we have, other shows that we have, our Evidence of Truth shows out there. Core Truth Media will take you there. And um, consider supporting us. A link is there as well, too. All I know is that we love you guys, and we do this because we want to bring this truth to you. We want to bring this knowledge to you so that's that you right. can share it. So that's what we ask for the most. 
that you guys just share and dispense this information to everyone that you meet. And boy, does this world need it. Amen. It really does. So thank you for joining us, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. We'll see you for our next episode. And as always, we love you. Thank you, guys. We love you. And we'll see you next time. God bless. Thank you for joining us today. We pray that we have been an encouragement to you. This episode has been made possible by listeners like you. Please consider partnering with us through your prayers and gifts. Your support enables us to provide sound biblical teaching that helps others open up their understanding of the scriptures across the globe. To support the show financially, click the Donate Now link in the episode notes, or you can visit our podcast website at relentlesslybiblical.org and use a donate link in the podcast player or the Support This Show button that's on our homepage. Thank you for your gracious support. Join us again for our next episode, and remember to always be in God's Word and stay relentlessly biblical. This episode has been a production of Core Truth Media, owned and operated by Core Truth Ministries. This podcast was recorded and engineered at Prevail Studios. 